Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew Fracknoy. I'm the Emeritus Chair of the Astronomy Department at Foothill College. And it's a great pleasure for me to welcome everyone, even during these COVID times, to the 21st Annual Silicon Valley Astronomy Lecture Series, a program designed to bring exciting topics in astronomy uh, to our viewers here in the San Francisco Bay Area and around the world. Um, these lectures are co-sponsored by four organizations, the Foothill College Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math Division, the SETI, or Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, and the University of California Observatories which includes the Lick Observatory, our subject for tonight. Uh, and we're very grateful to all these organizations for their support. Six times a year, we do these lectures uh, with noted astronomers. And I'm delighted to be able to introduce tonight's speaker. Uh, but before I do that, let me just remind everyone that uh, we encourage you to ask questions. And uh, in our format, you need to do the questions by email. And that'll be the, the address will be up on your screen from time to time. You send an email to astronomy at foothill.edu. And Dr. Jeff Matthews, the astronomy professor at Foothill, will be looking at those questions and asking them at the end of the talk. All right. Well, now, without further ado, let me introduce our speaker for tonight. Dr. Eleanor Gates is a staff astronomer at the Lick Observatory specializing in astronomy that involves a laser guide star that allows the optics to adapt to the weather and instruments that involve near-infrared cameras and observations. Uh, before moving to Lick Observatory, Dr. Gates worked at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, the IAU Minor Planet Center, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, and the Air Force Phillips Laboratory. Her current research interests are studying quasars and their host galaxies, observing quasars obscured by dust, and measuring the masses of quasars and the central black holes, the monsters that are at the centers of active galaxies. Uh, for her work in astronomy and also for her work in bringing astronomy to the public, the International Astronomical Union has renamed asteroid 2650, uh, asteroid Eleanor. So it's a great pleasure now for me to introduce discussing the Lick Observatory during pandemics, comparing 1918 and 2020. Our speaker tonight, Dr. Eleanor Gates. Thank you, Andrew, for that lovely introduction. Um, just so everyone knows, I, I am actually presenting from Lick Observatory, and it's currently snowing up here, so I hope there won't be any interruptions in our power or internet during this talk. Um, but if there is a glitch, be patient, we'll try and work it out and get back online as quickly as possible. Um, anyway, a year ago, when the pandemic began, um, I became very interested in seeing you know, how were things back in the last big pandemic uh, back in 1918? And how did Lick Observatory deal with it 
um, how did it affect it, and what science was current then, and how did it all compare to what we're going through now with the uh, COVID pandemic. And uh, I hope you'll appreciate some of the differences and a lot of the similarities um, that, that we'll talk about along the way. For those of you that aren't familiar with Lick Observatory, um, it sits on top of Mount Hamilton, east of San Jose. Um, this is the highest peak in the San Francisco Bay Area, also the only place guaranteed to get snow every winter in the Bay Area. Um, and it also was the first year-round accessible mountaintop observatory, setting the trend for all future major observatories. Um, the picture here notes many of our telescopes, not all of them on top of Mount Hamilton. Most of them are still are used for research, but a few have been retired. Uh, anyway, the beginning of the observatory started with James Lick, who was a wealthy businessman. At one point, the richest man in California with a fortune of over $3 million. And he wanted to uh, create a monument to himself so he would be remembered. And he decided to dedicate $700,000 of his fortune to building the greatest telescope in the world. And that telescope today is the 36-inch refracting telescope. So the there are two 36-inch diameter lenses at the top of the telescope, and then the eyepiece or instrument goes at the bottom. Um, James Lick sadly did not live to see the construction of his monument, which at the time in 1888, when it was completed, was the largest telescope of its kind in the world, and today is the second largest telescope of its kind still. Um, so he was actually buried at the base of the telescope. So the greatest telescope in the world at the time is his tombstone. The telescope made amazing discoveries right away. It was ready for use in 1888 and the first science target to be observed was Saturn by James Keeler who later became the director of Lick Observatory. And on the first night of observing with the telescope, he looked at Saturn's rings and he discovered a new gap in the A ring of Saturn, and he dubbed it the Enki Gap. And upon viewing Saturn and that, he said, beyond doubt, the greatest telescopic spectacle ever beheld. So indeed, James Lick did get the greatest telescope in the world at that time. Later on, when Voyager went by uh, Saturn, they discovered a new gap near the Enki division, and they dubbed it the Keeler Gap in Keeler's honor. Another early discovery with this telescope was Amalthea. Edward Emerson Barnard, who some of you may know from Barnard Star and other uh, famous discoveries of his, he discovered the fifth moon of Jupiter. Before that, the only moons known were the four Galilean moons discovered nearly 300 years before by Galileo. And this was the last moon in our solar system uh, discovered using visual techniques. That means that Mr. Barnard here in the photograph was looking through an eyepiece and making careful notes in his logbook on Jupiter and the positions of its moons and what he was seeing around it. Um, all moons in our solar system discovered since then have been discovered using photographs and not just looking through a telescope. But it says it early on in the history of the observatory, it was making great discoveries. And of course that continued uh, through the decades. So now we're gonna time warp forward 30 years to 1918 and talk about the Spanish flu. Now, the first thing to know about the Spanish flu is we don't actually know where the flu started, but it's called the Spanish flu because that's where the media 
um, of the flu cases was being open about it. And so that's where people heard about it first, but we don't actually know where the flu truly began back in 1918. But the story of the Spanish flu in the United States really starts with World War I. Now, World War I had begun in 1914 in Europe, but it wasn't until 1917 that the United States entered the war. And of course, by June, they needed more soldiers, so they were drafting people. And it wasn't very long after that, by March of 1918, with soldiers going to and from Europe, that they brought the flu back to the United States with them, um, as well as other people traveling between Europe and uh, the United States. And um, by April of 1918, they started having the first severe cases and the first deaths. By September of 1918, the second wave of the flu hit. And that was the one that was responsible for most of the deaths in the United States uh, with over 14,000 flu cases just at Camp Devens, which was, I believe, an army base outside of Boston. Um, by October of 1918, that was the deadliest month with 195,000 Americans dying of the flu. There were severe shortages of nurses. Cities around the country uh, were closing movie houses, uh, closing schools, theaters. Um, San Francisco instituted uh, a mask mandate so that people would wear their masks, in fact, with a $5 fine, which was quite a substantial sum that, back then if you didn't wear a mask. Um, et cetera. So it sounds scarily familiar to what we're going through today um, with, with things being closed and uh, wearing masks for uh, everyone's safety. Anyway, by November of 1918, the World War I ended, which of course was a wonderful occurrence, but with all the soldiers returning from Europe, they actually you know, facilitated the third wave of the flu in the winter of 1919, where for, for more local here in the Bay Area and San Francisco during the first five days of January, there were over 100 deaths just in San Francisco. And of course, it was similarly bad in many other places in the United States. By February, the pandemic was abating here in the U.S., but it was still raging in Europe. So when Woodrow Wilson, uh, our president, Woodrow Wilson, was at the Versailles Peace Conference, he collapsed. And they believe it was because he was suffering from the flu. Um, and indeed, the, the pandemic for the flu really didn't end until 1920. So it lasted a, a couple years. And overall, the, the grim statistics are the death toll was somewhere between 20 and 50 million people. So it's quite a devastating uh, pandemic uh, for relatively modern times. Anyway, so, so that's sort of the, the overall history of the pandemic. How did that affect Lick Observatory? Well, first it might have a better picture of what Lick Observatory is like back in 1918. So I have this little Google map here, and I hope you can all see my cursor moving at an area that was sort of called downtown. And today, everything east of my cursor is more modern. None of those buildings existed. There were other buildings there, barns for the horses, a school, um, some residences, workshops, et cetera. But it wasn't, there weren't any telescopes, uh, any substantial telescopes there to the east. But the west of the observatory looks more or less the same today. We have our historic main building with uh, the 36 inch refractor that James Lick built, the small dorm at the north end of the building housed 12 inch Clark refractor. 
Um, Edward Emerson Barnard had lived in this house on what we call Rattlesnake Ridge down here with the director's house where William Wallace Campbell in 1918 was the director of Lick Observatory and the Crosley Telescope, which had been erected in 1895. Um, William Wallace Campbell um, as a director was his family was the only family that had an automobile at that time in 1918. Automobiles were still relatively new. Um, and they, they um, also, um, these, these four houses up here didn't exist. They were built in the 1950s. Um, but you know, overall, the, 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 the Western half of the observatory looks more or less the same. Now in 1918, what affected the observatory more was actually World War I than the pandemic. Director Campbell, because Lick Observatory was such an isolated site, decided that it was uh, wise to essentially quarantine or, or you know, interact with people from town as little as possible. Don't go to town. So that they stayed isolated. So to the best of my knowledge, no one on Mount Hamilton at Lick Observatory ever got the flu. Um, and they would order down to town to get their groceries, household goods, anything they needed. And that would all come up the road uh, via the Mount Hamilton stage. So really they only had to interact with the Mount Hamilton stage driver. So they all stayed relatively safe. Unfortunately, the war um, took away some of the staff, uh, the young astronomy students, um, they, many of them were drafted and not available. Um, some of the older, more experienced astronomers volunteered for the war effort and using their technical skills to assist with the war. So Heber Curtis in particular, one of their prominent astronomers, um, was not uh, at the observatory at that time. Um, and so it was a chance for some of the um, lady astronomers and other staff members to step up and do more and keep science going. But it did slow things down, especially because money was going to the war effort not to research. So there was also uh, not quite as, as many funds for doing research as they might normally expect. Uh, so that was sort of what life was like on top of the mountain. Um, so, but what research were they actually doing? Well, the big news in 1918 was the total solar eclipse. And this eclipse was going through the United States. So um, Director Campbell set up an expedition to go to the total solar eclipse and do a number of different science projects of which I'm only gonna talk about two of them, how to test Einstein's theory of relativity and looking at coronal spectra. Now, <clears throat> um, the, the eclipse expedition, because it was in the United States was easier to get to. Um, they didn't have the travel restrictions back in 1918 with the pandemic that we do today. Um, so that helped, uh, and Heber Curtis um, was allowed to take a leave of absence from his war deport department job so he could come work on the total solar eclipse because it was so important, particularly this testing Einstein's theory of relativity. So Einstein's theory of relativity um, is all about gravity and how it bends light. Um, uh, and, and uh, a massive object like our sun can act like a lens. And uh, so what they had planned to do was when the moon moves in front of the sun and blocks it in the total solar eclipse, you can suddenly see the stars around the sun and their positions will be offset a little bit from where they should be if the sun wasn't there. So their plan was to take a photograph 
and measure the positions of those stars and compare it to a photograph taken six months earlier when the sun wasn't in front of those stars and um, see if they can measure this offset and prove Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, Heber Curtis had designed these absolutely exquisite glass rulers, very precise so they can measure the positions very accurately. Unfortunately, this eclipse expedition did not go as they had hoped. Um, they had tried to make the same measurement four years earlier at an eclipse in 1914 in the Ukraine. And unfortunately, the weather was terrible. It was cloudy. They got absolutely no data. They couldn't see the eclipse. So they were ready to return to the United States, but World War I began. And so the eclipse expedition team had planned to go back to the United States through Germany. And that was no longer possible because of the war. So they had to take a circuitous route through Finland um, and a number of other countries. But because of that, they were unable to bring their equipment back to the United States with them. They had to leave their equipment with trusted colleagues in Europe. And that, and though, that equipment did not make it back to the United States in time for the 1918 eclipse. So they did the best they could with the equipment they had. They actually borrowed some lenses from Chabot Observatory uh, and did the best they could. And when they set up in Goldendale, Washington, just 400 feet north of the center line of the eclipse, and they were almost two minutes of totality, um, they were ready to go. And then it was cloudy. But right before totality, the clouds opened up and they were able to get a little bit of data. Unfortunately, the data they got because they were borrowed lenses and not their primary equipment, the images they got of the stars during totality weren't good enough to confirm Einstein's theory of relativity. So they tried really hard, but the war and the, the conditions just were against them. It had to wait until 1919 with Eddington uh, to, to confirm Einstein's theory of relativity, but those data were a little questionable. So it really wasn't until 1922 when Director Campbell went to Australia and got the true definitive data uh, confirming Einstein's theory of relativity. So uh, they really you know, eventually got there, but 1918 was not their year uh, with all the hardships. The other thing that they were wanting to do was looking at this thing called the green coronal, excuse me, coronal line. And I need to give you a little background first on what a spectrum is. So if you take white light and send it through a prism or other dispersive medium like a, a, um, a diffraction grating or something, it splits the light up into its component colors, making a rainbow. And if you look at that rainbow in detail from the sun, you'll see these dark lines. And those dark lines are what are called absorption lines. And that's from uh, different molecules and atoms in the sun's atmosphere absorbing light at particular colors. And each atom, you know, hydrogen will absorb, absorb certain colors of light. Helium will absorb different colors of light. And so you can see those fingerprints in the spectrum. And uh, so you can figure out what the sun is made of. Um, and if those atoms are excited, they'll emit light at those same characteristic colors as they absorb when they're, they're, the atoms aren't excited. So 
during a total solar eclipse, you can actually see the corona. Normally the sun is too bright, you can't see the corona. And they were really interested in what the spectrum of the corona looked like. And they knew there was this green coronal line that they didn't know what caused it. And um, so they wanted to one measure its wavelength, its color extremely accurately, which they did succeed doing. Um, they measured it at 5303 angstroms and you know, decades later, the measurement's still good. They, they did a very good job. But if we look at the spectrum at the bottom of the image, you'll see this is the normal solar spectrum at the bottom with the absorption lines. And then above it, you'll see the coronal spectrum with these bright lines scattered around, um, some caused by hydrogen, some caused by calcium. Um, but if we look at the green coronal line, which is this single stripe here is the coronal spectrum. And then the right green coronal line is right here at a wavelength of 5303 angstroms. And angstroms is an incredibly tiny measure of length. So, so um, but you know, suffice to say it's in the green. These little hash marks above and below the coronal spectrum are caused by the instrument, by exciting iron. So it emits light at well-known frequencies. So we can calibrate this. Um, Anyway, the curious thing about the green coronal line is they didn't know what was causing it. They didn't know what element was causing it. Uh, they didn't figure it out back then. They didn't have the technology. But today, when we look at it, we know that it's caused by iron, a very, very highly excited iron. And they just didn't have the technology to excite iron so extremely to create these, uh, that, that green coronal line. But the green coronal line doesn't show up in every solar eclipse. Um, so here's a more modern image uh, of, uh, from a total solar eclipse in August of 2008. And the green coronal line, if you look here in the green, just doesn't exist. It's just, it's essentially not there. And today we know it's caused by magnetic fields in the, the suns, uh, in the sun, which are very complicated, uh, so, but uh, there's still a lot we need to learn about it. Uh, but they were at the very dawning uh, beginning of this particular solar research. So is that interesting stuff about the sun? As I said, they had many more ex successful experiments, but there's just, you know, not enough time to cover all of that. But what other research was Lick Observatory doing? Well, believe it or not, Lick Observatory had a second uh, station in South America to look at the southern sky uh, called the Dio Mills Expedition. And it had a uh, 37 inch diameter telescope and a spectrograph attached to it. And one of the big fields of research back then was determining the orbits of spectroscopic binary stars. So spectroscopic binary stars are two stars orbiting around each other. And, uh, but they're so close together, you see them as one star, you don't see them as two stars. So when we look at a star's spectrum, um, I've got a lot of spectra here. The ones at the top are hot stars. The ones at the bottom are cool stars. But you can see all these little dark lines in there, their absorption spectra. Our sun is a G-type star, so it's right here in the, the happy middle. Um, but uh, if you look at those stars, um, as they orbit around each other, those little dark absorption lines will shift to the blue and to the red as the star, one of the, the brighter stars moving towards you and then away from you. When it's moving towards you, it gets shifted a little, the lines get shifted a little bluewards. When they're moving away from you, they get shifted a little redwards. And you can track that over time. And with a nice circular orbit, like in the, the animation here, you get this nice sine wave curve that's very regular and very even. 
um, for the motion. So their goal was to measure the orbits of these spectroscopic binary stars to an accuracy of one kilometer per second, which is a speed of about 2,200 miles per hour. So these stars are moving pretty quickly, at, you know, at, and, uh, but measuring that accuracy is really, really hard. Um, so that we're talking a tiny fraction of an angstrom shift and that angstrom is already a tiny unit. Um, our eyes in the green can discern a color difference of maybe 10 angstroms. And so when you're looking at a tiny fraction of angstrom, this is really hard measurement to make, particularly back in 1918, but they were successful. And I'm just gonna show two examples of, uh, again, G-type stars, sort of like our sun. Uh, both these stars, A Carinae and Delta Columbae are bright. They're like fourth magnitude, which means you don't need a telescope to see them. Um, but uh, A Carinae, you can see lovely, nice, even curve here, has a period of about 190 days um, and almost perfectly circular orbit with such a beautiful, smooth curve like that. Delta Columbae, not quite so perfect a circle. Um, this lopsided curve you see is because the, the orbit is highly elliptical of the two stars around each other, very oval shaped. And, and so they can measure that. And the period was about 900 days, so a much longer period. So it took many years to gather all these data, but it was finally published in 1918. Uh, so what other research were they doing? Well, again, a lot of orbit work because they were still trying to figure out where things were going. Um, Comet Shore was discovered by a German astronomer in 1918, and uh, it's not a very bright or impressive comet, um, but you have a number of observers like Mr. Aitken at Lick Observatory took data on this. Uh, Edward Emerson Barnard had since moved to Yerkes Observatory from Lick Observatory, took a number of measurements. Anyway, they figured out from all these measurements from around the world that this uh, Comet had an orbit of about 6.7 years. So it goes around the sun reasonably quickly, but it never gets terribly close to the Earth. So it's never a bright, spectacular comet in our sky. Um, other objects in our solar system they were looking at were asteroids. And I like Asteroid Arita because this really highlights some of the lady astronomers involved. Um, uh, Asteroid Arita was discovered in 1911 by uh, Dr. Leuschner, and he named it after his da daughter, Arita. And, uh, but a lot of the data in 1918 and uh, were in, in late 1917 were taken by um, Margaret Harwood at M Mariah Mitchell Observatory and Miss Young at Lick Observatory. Um, and they determined that its orbit um, is about 5.3 years and it's firmly in the asteroid belt between Jupiter and Mars where a great many of the asteroids in our solar system are. So, they weren't just doing solar system astronomy, they were also looking farther out. Uh, Heber Curtis here at our Crosley telescope um, was noticing along with James Keeler before him, but unfortunately James Keeler died young. So Heber Curtis continued this research, um, was noticing that when you looked at a field, you'd often see these spiral nebulae in the background. They're just dotted everywhere. And Heber Curtis had this intuition that these were far away, that they were outside of our Milky Way. Um, and in fact, he was thinking they were other island universes because the term galaxy hadn't been invented yet. Uh, and this led to what's called the great debate in 1920 after the pandemic had ended between Heber Curtis at Lick Observatory and Harlow Shapley at uh, Harvard College Observatory. Now Harley, Harlow Shapley 
thought that these spiral nebulae had to be nebulae, clouds of gas and dust in our own Milky Way, that the universe couldn't possibly be so large as to have other island universes out there. Turns out Heber Curtis was correct and that um, you know, these other spi these spiral nebulae are in fact other galaxies far away. Um, so really this was fundamental in helping us learn more about the size and scale of our universe and that it was really much larger than uh, people had previously conceived. So lots of exciting research going on in 1920, um, but now we're gonna time warp forward a hundred years to 2020. Um, and our current pandemic and what is going on. Um, and our current pandemic really began at the tail end of 2019, when there was a cluster of unusual pneumonia cases in Wuhan, China. Um, and it was quickly determined in early January that this was an outbreak of a new coronavirus. Um, and just uh, within a few days later, they had the genetic sequence and it was shared publicly, allowing researchers worldwide to start figuring out how does this virus work? How dangerous is it? Can we make a vaccine? All those necessary questions that scientists want to answer. By the end of January, it's clear this virus was spreading around the world uncontrolled. So there was a global health emergency. Uh, and by early February, the World Health Organization actually gave the virus a name. The virus itself is called SARS-CoV-2 and the disease it causes is COVID-19. Um, and about a month later in March, it became an official pandemic. I think most people knew it was pandemic before it was officially announced. Um, but that's also the time at which things really started happening in our own personal lives that I'm sure we've all experienced over the past year. Um, and things highlighted in red are things that are concern um, Lick Observatory and UC Santa Cruz, which is where most of our administrative offices and a lot of our technical support labs are. So it's all the Lick Observatory and UC Santa Cruz sort of go along together in, in how we've um, managed our response to coronavirus and how it's affected us. But on March 11th, UC Santa Cruz um, suspended in-person classes to protect their students, their staff, the public, et cetera. Here at Lick Observatory at our visitor center, we decided that if we're gonna have the public on site, we want them to be safe. So we enhanced our cleaning standards, decided we'd have smaller groups going in to see the 36 inch refractor and hear about the history. Um, we also decided that we needed to cancel all our existing April and May events. And this included weddings and private viewing parties, public evening tours, photography nights. Um, we had a lot of public events scheduled. Um, just a couple days later, it became obvious that it was just not going to be enough. So Lick Observatory, along with the Tech Museum and other museums in Santa Clara County, we shut down to the public. Um, and just a few days later, um, Santa Clara County instituted its uh, shelter in place order. Um, and uh, UC Santa Cruz also decided that they would close campus except for essential personnel and activities and ramp down research. Now Lick Observatory, because our administrative office are at UC Santa Cruz meant that we also had to ramp down our research, which meant you know, using the telescopes is not an essential function. So essentially astronomy at Lick Observatory stopped. Um, in terms of using the telescopes. 
Um, anyway, the, the pandemic progressed by March 20th, that there were more, that they hit more than a thousand cases in California. Today, that sounds like a small number considering we typically right now are having about 4,000 new cases a day in California. So things are improving, but it's not great. Um, but anyway, over the next weeks and months, more and more cases, more and more deaths, um, quite depressing. Um, so I won't detail it, it, go into too much detail. But um, by mid-April, it was clear that Lick Observatory wouldn't be allowed to open again for any of our summer programs. So all our concert series, Evening with the Stars, uh, lectures and, and viewing events were all canceled as well as all the private events. So we really miss having the public up here um, and we hope we'll be able to get you back sometime, uh, maybe later this year. We'll, find, we'll just have to see how things go. Anyway, case counts kept going up. Um, there was a first wave, a second wave, um, the third wave of uh, COVID in the US peaked early to mid-January, um, but there is hope on the horizon. We have had two vaccines approved for use in December and a third vaccine approved for use just last week, I think it was. So there's hope people are getting vaccinated, case rates are going down, death rates are going down. So I hope we've turned the corner on this um, pandemic and that things are looking up for the future. Uh, anyway, how was Lick Observatory dealing with this? Well, of course it was chaos for everybody. Lick Observatory was no different. Um, starting March 13th, we actually decided every morning, first thing we would have a leadership meeting. And so you can see this lovely Zoom picture here. We've got Claire Max, the director of the University of California Observatories, Matthew Chetrone, our deputy director. And I'll also highlight Costas Kloros here because he is our um, superintendent uh, for Mount Hamilton and Lick Observatory. So he's in charge of the entire observatory facility here on top of Mount Hamilton. And of course there are other members from various other subsections of Lick Observatory. As I said already, we closed to the public and on March 17th, we had to shut down all the telescope operations except robotic telescopes. And so the robotic telescopes were in this gray zone. They sort of operate autonomously, but if something breaks, you need to have staff available to fix it. Um, so we, we sort of shut down the robotic telescopes until we figured out what was going on and who was essential personnel. It turned out essential personnel was pretty much all of our maintenance staff because we have a lot of buildings and we need to make sure that the water and the heat, electricity, et cetera, all works. Um, our custodians, because of course we need a clean facility for our people to work in to be safe. Many of our telescope operators were deemed essential because uh, they could monitor the weather and the conditions, deal with emergencies offer after hours, as well as maintain the equipment. We have cameras that require filling with liquid nitrogen, which is extremely cold to keep our cameras at say minus 120 degrees Celsius. Um, and that just needs to be done every day to maintain the equipment. And we didn't want things to break so, and, and become unusable. So that was essential. Um, and they were also determined that if, say, a telescope, a robotic telescope, its dome failed, it didn't close, that we'd have a person able to go and, you know, fix the dome, get it closed, or put things in as safe a state we could until we could figure out a proper repair plan. Um, this also affected our shops on campus, where all the, they build a lot of equipment for both Lick Observatory and Keck Observatory. We had upgrades in process here. Here are two of my colleagues who uh, helped me install uh, new 
uh, instrument in our adaptive optics system, one of my specialties. And uh, it was, you know, we installed it at the end of February. We we're all ready to put it on the telescope at the end of March. And then of course we couldn't because we had to shut down. So it sat idle for months uh, while we figured out how to get work done. But we did get science going with the robotic telescopes pretty quickly. And so what science are we doing today with our robotic telescopes? Well, first one I'm gonna talk about is the automated planet finder. This is a 2.4 meter diameter telescope. You might be able to see a hint of the mirror at the bottom of the telescope there, um, almost eight feet in diameter. And its sole purpose is to look for planets around other stars. And uh, it does that in much the same way that um, the observers looking at spectroscopic binary stars did back in 1911. They're looking for the tiny wobble of the star as it orbits around the common center of mass as the planet. This is much harder to do because stars are reasonably massive. Planets are pretty small and tiny compared to their parent star. So that instead of looking for an accuracy and measuring these velocities of the star down to one kilometer per second, we're now talking one meter per second or half a meter second. So most of us can easily walk that speed. So tiny, tiny little shifts, very difficult to do, but we can do it with the APF telescope. And of course, discovering these planets takes some time, just like with the spectroscopic binaries. You know, some planets might be very close to their parent star and go around the star in a couple days. Some might take years. So you just need a lot of data observing over a lot of time and a lot of different stars to detect these planets. So we've been regularly doing that and continuing to do it through the pandemic. It's worked reasonably well. Um, we haven't lost a lot. We didn't lose a lot of time and data because of the pandemic. Um, another, our, one of our newest instruments on Mount Hamilton is called Panoceti, run by Shelley Wright at UC San Diego. And uh, this stands for, pulsed all-sky near-infrared optical SETI. So yes, we're looking for other intelligent life out there with this new instrument. So it's using an older telescope dome um, that house, use, houses the Carnegie Dual Astrograph. Now we're not using that telescope, but they installed these two cameras here at the bottom of the slit. And the slit just stays parked, pointed south, and it opens up when the weather is good. And the cameras are looking at the sky as the sky drifts overhead and uh, in hopes of seeing these pulse laser signals that might be coming from other intelligent civilizations out there. And uh, of course I haven't discovered anything yet. It hasn't been used full time, but it was available and functioning. It was installed late in 2019. So it's, it's quite a new instrument up here. Um, so, oops, there we go. Um, our third automated telescope is the Katzman Automated Imaging Telescope, or KATE for short. It's a 30-inch diameter telescope, and it goes and it looks at galaxies night after night, and it compares the picture of a galaxy it takes one night with the picture it took a couple nights ago, looking for new stars that have appeared in that field. And when a supernova occurs, it looks like a bright new star in the galaxy, much brighter than any other star in the galaxy. Now, there are two types of supernovae. One is a type 1A, uh, in this it's picture supernova 1994D um, is an example. And this is where you have a white dwarf star that has a companion star that's dumping material onto that white dwarf star. And that white dwarf star explodes when it hits 1.4 times the mass of our sun. 
And because it always, these always explode at the same mass, they're always pretty much the same brightness. So you can use that. If it looks really bright, that means the galaxy is close to us. If it looks really faint, it means it's much further away. So you can actually use this to measure the distances of galaxies. The second type of supernova is the supernova 2A, which you can see in the little animated GIF over here, um, seeing it explode and get really bright and then fading away. This is when a star much more massive than our own sun explodes at the end of its lifetime. Um, so both are interesting. They're trying to discover them all. You know, historically, they discover a new supernova with uh, the Kate telescope and then follow it up with other telescopes here on Mount Hamilton. But during the early months of the pandemic, we were just discovering them. We didn't have the capability because our other telescopes were shut down to follow them up. But it didn't take us too long to get things up and running. Um, on March 18th, um, soon after the shutdown started, we said, ah, we need to make sure that people can use our telescopes remotely um, from their own homes right now. You know, before that, they could use them remotely, but they had to be in a control room, um, a specified control room at one of the UC campuses. And so we had to make the pajama observing software so that they could you know, make it easy to install on their home computers, regardless of what operating system they're using. Um, make it so that it has the proper security so they can get through our rather tight firewall here on Mount Hamilton. Um, anyway, so it took us some weeks to get things ready and tested, but by mid-April, we were ready to take science with the Nickel Telescope, our one meter telescope. Um, you can see there, you know, size with me there in the picture to see the size and scale of this thing. Um, and the first night they were observing supernovae. So yay, they could follow up their supernova discoveries from both the Kate and other telescopes in the, around the world. And this was supernova 2020 HLA, happens to be a type 1A supernova. Um, so you can see, if you can see it right above my little red laser pointer dot, that's the supernova. And then just to the upper right of it, a tiny bit is the fuzzy thing is the galaxy that hosts that supernova. Um, so science started happening. It was great. Um, it was a little limited because our staff time was limited. So they could only observe like 10 hours of night. So what you couldn't necessarily get the whole night, which was awkward but we were doing the best we could in the COVID era. It was more complicated to get our Shane three meter telescope back online um, because it has a dedicated telescope operator that needs to be in the dome and in the building. And when you're, you know, when research is, you know, astronomical research isn't an essential personnel, how do you justify having a person in the building doing health assisting research? Anyway, we eventually navigated those waters and got them running. So by mid-May, we were up and running with our three meter telescope. Again, in a limited sense, we only had the one instrument that was mounted on the telescope at the time the pandemic began, which was the CAS spectrograph because we couldn't have multiple staff in the dome at the same time to change instruments. Uh, so we were limited. Um, this picture here was taken in December of 2019, right before the pandemic hit of our staff in front of our biggest telescope. Um, someday I hope we'll be able to do a similar picture after the pandemic uh, abates, um, but again, First science done was more supernova follow-up. And this was supernova 2020 uh, JFO, which happened to be a type two supernova. And so again, they're taking spectra, spreading out the light into its component colors. The, the vertical lines here are the supernova. And there are two of them because they were looking at the polarization. So it turns out that supernovae can be polarized. So you can look at uh, different polarizations of light. So it actually takes pictures of two polarizations at the same time. Um, figured all sorts of interesting things about the 
shape of the supernova explosion and how it's interacting with its environment. It's all sorts of fascinating things to be figured out. Anyway, so science was going and running, limited, but we were making progress and this was great. And then August rolled around and as if 2020 wasn't difficult enough, we had wildfires. So you might see in the, the image uh, towards the right-hand side, a little red glow. That's a fire started by the, um, <clears throat> the lightning storm, the dry lightning storm. It started, this storm started thousands of fires. Some of them were put out right away. This one was not. This one merged with other fires to become the Calaveras zone fire. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and it eventually overran Lick Observatory. So just two days later, Lick Observatory late at night was ordered to evacuate. The fire got too close and they wanted us to get out while it was still safe. So we all did get out. We grabbed our essential things, our families, our pets and left the mountain. Um, and the next morning we were relieved to see the sheer number of CAL FIRE crews on top of Mount Hamilton to save our facility. Um, it was really astonishing. Uh, Costas Chloros, our uh, mountain superintendent, returned to the mountain after um, evacuating because it was clear that Cal Fire needed his local knowledge about the fire roads, our water system, um, and Cal Fire was using our main building and visitor center as a command zone and a safety zone. Uh, because we are the highest peak of the Bay Area. So it gives them a commanding view and a safe place to uh, operate from, as well as our, we lost power from PG&E pretty early in the fire, but we had a generator that came on and created power so that, you know, we could keep communications flowing. Um, by about three in the afternoon on August 19th, the fire actually hit Lick Observatory. And it started with the residential area on the Northwest edge of the observatory facility, um, you know, and, and it damaged houses there. Um, the, the, you know, this, oops, where'd my cursor go? Um, the flames in this picture that Costas took, you know, those flames are over hundred feet high. So it was this raging fire coming through the observatory. Um, it then moved south to uh, Rattlesnake Ridge where the Crosley house is and Barnard's uh, historic residence. Um, Barnard's residence did not make it. It was fully engulfed by flames. Fortunately, no one was using that house at the time. Um, there was quite a lot of damage at the observatory. Uh, you can see the remains of the Barnard house, personal property. And in, in this photo here, you can just see how close the flames got to the telescopes. We are fortunate that Cal Fire was able to save all the telescopes. None of the telescopes were damaged in the fire. Um, many houses were damaged. Uh, none of that damage to the houses has been fixed yet. We're working on it. It's a, it's a big process to uh, fix so much damage. Um, there was a lot of infrastructure damage, um, water systems, power, internet, propane lines, guardrails, um, drainage systems. You know, we, we need to, you know, restore erosion control. Um, but a couple days after the fire went through and it sort of finished going through the observatory on August 20th and um, our maintenance staff, a few key people were allowed to return to the observatory a few days after the fire to start doing essential cleanup, removing burned and damaged trees that might fall on buildings or the road, um, 
restore power, restore phone service, internet to all the various effective parts of the observatory. Um, make sure we had enough diesel for our uh, generator to provide power for communications and, and operations. Um, you know, it's so much stuff they did um, just to get us back to an operation. Um, about September 9th, the uh, evacuation order was lifted and most of our staff returned to the mountain uh, soon thereafter, once our houses were deemed to be, you know, be able to live in. There are still two houses on Mount Hamilton that are not um, in a suitable state for living in. So we have a couple staff members actually living in our dormitory because their houses are not yet livable. Um, so it's been pretty rough. Uh, but once we had all our staff back on the mountain, we could start getting the telescopes back into shape because unfortunately the domes are not sealed. So dust, uh, not just dust, ash, soot got into the dome. So we actually had to clean all the telescopes, check all the mirrors, clean off the mirrors. We're, you know, some of the mirrors, we use this spiffy product called first contact that you sort of, you know, carefully, you know, spread on the optic and then it dries Then you peel it off and it takes all the junk with it. Um, so, you know, but, you know, huge clean operation. Um, and then testing all the mechanical systems, making sure no ash got into things like, you know, motors and encoders, they'd still run. And then eventually we finally got to cool down all the cameras because of course they all warmed up because we had no staff on the mountain uh, to keep the cameras cold, test everything to get back on the sky. We have a lot of telescopes. It took us quite a long time, but we had all our science telescopes back in operation by the end of October. So it was a couple months without getting data at all with any of our telescopes, but uh, we did manage to uh, get back online before the end of the year. And not only that, in November, we finally had enough staff working on things on campus and work through research issues that we could actually bring up our newest telescope to Mount Hamilton, the uh, 20 inch PEES telescope. And PEES stands for Planet as Exoplanet Analog Spectrograph. So this is only a 20 inch diameter telescope but it uses all off the shelf parts and was built by uh, Emily Martin, a uh, researcher at UC Santa Cruz. And they brought it up the mountain and it's gonna look at planets in our own solar system and then scramble the light. So it looks more like what we'd see if we were observing a planet around another star. Because one of the things we have in our solar system is of course we can look at Jupiter, we can see all the fancy details of its atmosphere, great red spot, the cloud bands, things like that, and try and learn more about the storms and the structure of the atmosphere. But if we're looking at a planet around another star, it's too far away. You can't see those details. So the, the telescope um, gathers the light and sets it into this little gizmo called an integrating sphere, which scrambles the light and then sends it to a spectrograph. And that sort of simulates what we'll see if we look at a planet around another star so that we can try figuring out what we can determine about uh, exoplanet atmospheres um, as the technology evolves and we, we get to see more details and, and study more ex exoplanets. So anyway, in late November, right before Thanksgiving on a very cold and windy night, you can see Emily here totally bundled up for the cold. Um, but they took a spectrum of Mars and it was successful. And in fact, just coming up Friday night, they will be training an undergraduate student on how to operate this system and get more data and get the students now back involved in astronomy here on Mount Hamilton and, and get uh, help our education mission. So I've talked about a lot of different topics and a lot of different calamities, um, but you can see that 
you know, the pandemics and, and events affected things differently in the different time periods, but the way we do science hasn't changed all that much. It's still a lot of spectroscopy, a lot of the same techniques. It's just that the technology has advanced so that we can do things in more detail and things that are more challenging. Um, so I hope you can appreciate that. And finally, since the fire was so trying and we're still working on recovering from it, uh, you can donate to our wildfire relief efforts uh, with the uh, URL bit.ly slash lickfriends, um, all lowercase, um, or you can help us by buying things from our core uh, gift shop, which hasn't had many customers this year. Um, we have an online gift shop and you can use the coupon code SVAL21 to um, get a discount on any you know, sweatshirts or pictures or, or anything you might want from our gift shop. Uh, so with that, thank you very much. And I'm happy to take some questions. Well, thank you very much. Oh, I'm not. There we go. Uh, thank you very much, Eleanor. This was a wonderful tour through both history and science. And I want to encourage people who are viewing us now to ask questions using the email address, uh, astronomy at foothill.edu. But before we go to questions, let me just emphasize what you said. Um, I have the honor of serving this year as the uh, chair of the board of the Friends of Lick Observatory. And we've been, of course, taking the wildfire emergency very much uh, to heart and trying to help the observatory in cleaning up and restoring some of the infrastructure that Eleanor talked about so eloquently. So I want to also encourage any of you who are fans of astronomy or fans of the Lick Observatory uh, to take uh, a minute to look at the page that uh, you heard about, uh, which is uh, bit.ly forward slash Lick Friends. And if you make a contribution of $50 or more to the Wildfire Relief Fund, uh, we will make you a member of the Friends of the Lick Observatory for a year uh, free. And that will give you access to some of the news of what's happening at the observatory, some of the exciting research news as the uh, instruments are restored and being used again. And also once the programs at Lick Observatory resume, the public programs, the friends get first dibs on tickets to those uh, public programs. So uh, if you are able, and interested in contributing, we encourage you to do that. And as I say, any contribution over $50 will make you a member of the Friends of the Lick Observatory for a full year. All right, well, let me uh, uh, go ahead now and introduce Dr. Jeff Matthews, who is the astronomy professor at Foothill College. And he has been monitoring the questions. And uh, Jeff, I'm gonna turn things over to you. All right, thank you, Andy. And, uh, thank, and I would like to, to also thank uh, Dr. Gates for speaking with us this evening. It was a great talk. And so we have had a flood of questions. So I'm going to apologize upfront for, to folks who, if, if we can't get to your question. Okay, and so um, 
I've tried to group these as well. So some questions, I might not say your name, but you'll hear a similar question if you ask something that somebody else already asked as well. So uh, I have a question from Neil um, saying the slide of light bending due to the sun's gravity was obviously was much exaggerated. How much actual uh, bending of the star's location was measured? So I think this is referring to the uh, 1918 uh, experiment. Yeah. So unfortunately, I don't remember off the top of my head how much the bending was, but it was truly tiny. Um, so, you know, it's, I, 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 I hesitate to put a figure, but I suspect it was less than an arc second, you know, or, or certainly less than two arc seconds. So very, very small bending. So yeah, that figure was vastly exaggerated just to make the point. Uh, you know, if we were just looking at it, we wouldn't see it. I mean, there's a reason Heber Curtis had commissioned those incredibly precise glass rulers because they knew it would be a tiny and very difficult to measure shift. Okay. And so then um, uh, I have a question from Jamie asking, so for figuring out the lines for the elements like that, uh, that mystery green line, mm -hmm. was that done at Lick 2? Um, I believe figuring out the coronal green line um, that is caused by a highly ionized iron was not done at Lick Observatory. Um, I suspect that was uh, partly done in a laboratory that was working on different elements and high ionization states uh, and then compared to what they saw in coronal spectra. I'm not sure of that, but that's, that would be my guess, but I'm pretty sure it was not done right at Lick Observatory. Right. Okay. And, and this, and this is me commenting, I guess, this sort of highlights sort of the interdependence of all of the, of all of the fields of chemistry and astronomy and how the, there's back and forth between them. Oh, certainly. I mean, a, you know, a lot of chem, a lot of astronomy depends on what people are doing in physics laboratories to determine some of these, you know, obscure ionization states and, and uh, you know, properties of atoms in extreme environments like would be around a star. Uh, so we get clues from astronomy, but then it's the laboratory work that you need to, to do to uh, really confirm it a lot of cases. Okay, so then we have a question from Leslie asking, um, so with the slide showing the binary stars, shouldn't we be seeing two sets of lines? Uh, um, yes, and in general, you often do see two sets of lines. So you get two complementary measurements. Sometimes the second star is just too faint so that it's really dominated by the bigger star that you see and measure. So it does vary um, quite, quite a lot, but uh, there are cases with excuse me, spectroscopic binary stars where you do see the, the line shifting with respect to each other. Okay, and so then, uh, so now getting in, here's some, several people actually asked questions like this one. So uh, asking, as the pandemic has led to less traffic and improved air quality, uh, has this changed uh, Lick's astronomy work? Uh, some, with some people also asking, you know, did this, did this make things better? Um, I would say from our experience on Mount Hamilton that, that most of the pollution from cars and such usually stays below the peak of Mount Hamilton. That's one of the advantages of being on a mountaintop observatory. Um, there's this thing in the Bay Area called the marine layer. And the top of the marine layer is usually below Mount Hamilton. 
so that we're actually in this upper level of air that has less pollution. Um, so we haven't particularly noticed a change in terms of pollution levels um, in our own research. We haven't done a real good job of measuring it either, but, uh, but we haven't noticed any real change. And so then uh, kind of related question from Corey asking, uh, since Lick Observatory is so close to San Jose and San Francisco, is light pollution a problem? Light pollution is a huge problem for Lick Observatory and has been for quite a long time. We were fortunate in that the 1980s that San Jose Institute of Lighting Policy that was mostly low pressure sodium lights. They're these yellow orange lights that you know people don't like for street lights very much. Um, they like white light because that's natural uh, for how we have vision. But it was great for Lick Observatory because all the light was emitted at like one color and we could filter that out and everything else was left alone. Um, things are changing now that uh, LED lights are so much more energy efficient, um, but we're still working with San Jose to make sure they're properly shielded and give them our advice about things like lighting policy. Um, you know, recently there's been this uh, electronic billboards and potentially having them in San Jose and Lick Observatory has been giving them you know, how it will affect us, um, what are mitigations, uh, of course, ideally we'd love to have no light in San Jose um, and, and dark skies, but that's unrealistic. So we do the best we can. Uh, fortunately, we can evolve with the times. We're now focusing more on infrared astronomy, which isn't affected by the lights in San Jose. Um, other survey programs, like looking at bright stars for exoplanets, the, the San Jose light pollution doesn't affect that too much. So we're, focusing our research on the things that will still excel even with light pollution. Okay, and so then um, moving into questions kind of related to the, the wildfires, uh, Alec asked, did they have to deal with wildfires 100 years ago? Uh, yes, they did. Um, wildfires are just part of the ecosystem, but they never had to deal with anything on the scale of the SCU wildfire, which is, I think, currently the third largest wildfire in California history. Um, so that was, it was sort of a, a huge event. But, you know, there are stories earlier in the history of the observatory um, where the staff member are going out to deal with a wildfire. And even when I started at Lick Observatory, we had a small fire brigade of which I was a member and we would deal with small wildfires and try to keep them contained or take care of them around the observatory property until Cal Fire could get there to take over as the professionals. Um, so it's, it's been, you know, it's always been a problem for the observatory, but the scale of the SCU wildfire was just unprecedented. Wow, and for your local fire brigade, did y'all have like special training that y'all had to do as part of that? Uh, yeah, we definitely had special training. We had equipment, uh, you know, we had a couple fire trucks on site. Um, so we would, we would get help training from Cal Fire. They have, a, they have a station seven miles down the road at Smith Creek. Uh, so they're relatively nearby. And so we, we used to work, well, we still do work very closely with them. And so then uh, we have a question. Um, why did one of the telescopes need a person with it, but the other one was okay without a person? So part of it is the technologies involved. Um, our three meter telescope was built in the 1950s. And that's the one that requires an on-site operator. 
because it is so massive and the, the you know, older technology, um, if you do something wrong, it could destroy the telescope. Whereas the nickel telescope is smaller and uh, was installed in the 1970s with slightly more modern technology. And we've actually spent a lot of time sort of making it almost indestructible because that's the one that we train a lot of our undergraduates on. And you know, we wanna make sure that if they make a mistake, they try to point at an object that's too low in the sky that they don't break the telescope. So a lot of work has been put into making our other telescopes robust so they can't be damaged. But a lot of that isn't feasible with the 1950s telescope. And, and in a related note, um, you know, sort of related to equipment and durability, uh, I've got a question from Brian asking, why do the cameras need to be cooled? So these are digital cameras, not too dissimilar from the digital cameras that you can buy or in your cell phone, but um, they're so sensitive to light. They're actually sensitive to their own heat. And uh, that, that, and that um, you, know, you don't wanna see the camera's own heat. You wanna see the light coming through the telescope. So if you cool it down, and make it cold, that makes sure that you're seeing the right photons from the right place. Um, so, so that's why, you know, and, and just seems to be that most of our detectors, the optimum um, temperature to operate is somewhere between minus 100 and minus 100 degrees Celsius for most of our cameras. And so uh, yet another related question, this one from Catherine asking, so, does LIC have a special protocol for shutting down instruments before an evacuation? And if so, was there time to follow it before evacuating from the fire? So I wouldn't say we have a particular protocol. Most of our instruments are pretty robust. So if the power goes out or something, they're pretty safe. Um, I, however, when we got the, we, it was about 11 at night that we got the evacuation warning and then it was at 1130 at night that we got the evacuation order. And the first thing I did was I actually got on my computer and went to the adaptive optics instrument, which is very picky and managed to and shut it completely down, knowing that I wouldn't be able to get back to it for at least a few days. And we were all hoping that we'd be back on the mountain, like, you know, three, four days, you know, when, you know, the fire would miss us, we'd be safe. That's not what happened. We were away for weeks. But, uh, but yeah, I did take the time and I was totally stressed out because I was like, how am I going to get my cat into the cat carrier? How am I going to, you know, what do I need to take with me uh, to evacuate? Where am I going to evacuate to? Uh, you know, all those questions were racing through my brain and it was only a half hour between the evacuation warning and the evacuation order. So it was, came very quickly. Wow, half an hour. Okay. <laughs> and so then um, oh, we're getting to, you know, probably we'll be able to take a, a few more questions here, uh, two or three more questions. Uh, this is a, a combo one, so I'll cheat a little bit. Uh, so Amresh is asking, uh, what is the most exciting discovery done by Lick in the last decade? And does the observatory work with other observatories to do collaborative research? Uh a lot of collaborative research happens. Um, astronomy, I'm very pleased to say, is a very collaborative science. So, so I mean, sometimes you'll have competing teams, but uh, it's, it's usually friendly competition, but collaborations happen all the time. I mean, we have a group in Korea that uses our telescopes and we collaborate with them. Um, so, so that's great. But 
in terms of the greatest discovery in the past decade or so, oh, that's really hard. Um, the, so much has been discovered between the supernovae, the exoplanets, um, uh, oh gosh. Um, I think we would take the fifth on that. I don't, I don't want to single out a particular project and, and make people mad at me if I choose the wrong one. Um, but but there, there's an awful lot going on here. Um, I mean, I get excited every time when I use the adaptive optic system and you know, we're looking for binary stars. And every time I see it clearly is, oh, there are two stars. And you know, we only knew it was one before. I mean, I just get excited. Uh, so you know, I, I think those are great discoveries, uh, but not everyone would agree. <laughs> Asking for your favorite, that, that's, you know, that, that question is clearly a trap. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, so I'm, I'm going to cheat one more time and group together several questions. Uh, multiple people emailed in, uh, and, and I think we'll go ahead and make this the last one. Multiple people emailed in asking about Starlink. So uh, the, these, the, or, and these other sort of um, communications constellations that are going up. And so several people are asking about, uh, are these creating difficulties um, for, for the observatories? So some observatories have been hit much harder by Starlink than others, depending on the sort of research you do. Um, I know with Starlink, I'm particularly worried about the Vera Rubin telescope, uh, formerly known as the LSST. Um, because it has such a wide field and it's going to be looking at stuff every night at the whole sky and, and it's going to see those satellites um, and it's going to make analyzing those data and finding the new objects really difficult. I know they have people working on it. Uh, Lick Observatory, there aren't so many of them yet that we're having our data particularly contaminated by Starlink satellites, but of course they're still in the early stages of sending them up. Um, where I have noticed it is with our laser guide star system um, because we have to clear any target we're looking at with US Space Command to make sure that our laser won't hit a satellite that can be damaged by our laser. Now the Starlink satellites can't be damaged by our laser, um, but when they launch a new set of satellites, there's a whole bunch of new things up there that Space Command needs to track and make sure they have the right objects for. And so we end up with lots of shutdowns of our laser to make sure we don't hit something and make a mistake. Uh, so it's been a little inconvenient when they, you know, first launched them. Um, but, uh, you know, we're working on it. Uh, I know that SpaceX is working on this issue as well to mitigate the problem. Um, but it is a big concern. And it's, it's also a concern for radio telescopes because the um, mission of those satellites for internet can interfere with radio telescopes. So uh, it's, 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 a, it's a problem. Um, so I'm hoping we'll come up with solutions that will work for everybody. All right. Well, thank, thank you, Jeff, for the questions. And uh, that was a, a, a great question period. And thank you, Eleanor, in general, for giving us a real taste of what life is like at an observatory. I think this really made some of the astronomical work come alive for all of us. So thank you again. Thank you. Um, My pleasure. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to say that our lecture series will continue uh, via uh, this online facility. And our next talk is going to be April 28th, when we're delighted to have astronomer and popular author, Jana Levin, who has just written a book called The Black Hole Survival Guide. 
and she's going to talk to us about how you might survive or whether you might survive a trip near and into a black hole. So we'll see you at 7 p.m. on April 28th for another Silicon Valley Astronomy Lecture. Good night, everyone.